Well, again, good morning to everyone. It's good to see you. Just got to scan the room, just sort of see who's here, who faces I recognize, faces I may not recognize, but I've been away for a couple of weeks. Terry and Adrian and I were on holidays, so we missed the church picnic and all the shenanigans that were associated with that day, uh, as well as last Sunday, but it's good to be back with you. For those of you who uh, may be new to Artisan or are visiting with friends or family, uh, we have been spending the summer since the beginning of June in the book of 1 John. And uh, we've got two Sundays left, so today and then next week. For those of you who have been around, how are you doing with it? How has this been for you? Uh, we have had eight sermons thus far through the summer, and I'm guessing that few of us have been here for all of them. Um, I'm not trying to award gold stars or here for anyone that's saying, like, yeah, totally have, um, but nor the, other th- nor the other thing to induce guilt. But um, maybe some have listened to some of the podcasts that you've missed, but I'd bet that like me, due to holidays or whatever reason, uh, you've been a little in and out of the series, and that's to be expected. Um, and I only mention it to say that the advantage of looking at a book like 1 John in the summer months, where people are away, then back, then away, and then back again, is that this particular apostle tends to repeat himself with some frequency. And so, well, you might have been gone for a few weeks, but when you come back and realize that, oh yeah, he's still reminding Christians that they're not Gnostics. Uh, he's still talking about the incarnation. He's still on about reminding us that we need to love each other, and it's got to look like something. You can still feel like you're in the loop. So, and those of you who are joining us for the first time, perhaps, this morning, you've come on a good week. Why do I say that? Because I think we've come to a bit of a climactic moment in our journey through 1 John. I see it as a high point for a few reasons. One is that the biggest theme in the letter, love, is mentioned 27 times in chapter 4. And 13 of those times are in the somewhat about six verses that we're looking at today. So there's no question as to what the subject matter is here. And we seem to be at the very heart of the letter. We've arrived at what John most wants to say. So everything before this point has led up to this, and everything that comes after, we could say, deepens and anchors it. But another reason for this text being a sort of a summit point, and frankly, why I kind of get excited, I, I get to preach it, is that the Apostle John is the only writer in Scripture who dares to make definitive statements about the essence of God. He does it three times in Scripture. He says God is spirit, he says God is light, and he says God is is love, and that's where we find in our text today. And bo- um, yeah, so I already told you what it is, but I want to just acknowledge that the word God itself brings a, a massive spectrum of thoughts, images, and ideas, even in a church setting. So I want to just get this out of the way. Listen to how Rob Bell opens his book, when we t- what we talk about when we talk about God. He said, I realize that when we use the word God, there's a good chance I'm stepping on all kinds of landmines. Is there a more volatile word loaded down with more history, assumptions, and expectations than that tired, old, relevant, electrically charged, provocative, fresh, antiquated, yet ubiquitous as ever, familiar slash unfamiliar word, God? And that's why I use it. From people risking their lives to serve the poor because they believe God called them to do it, to pastors claiming that the latest tornado or hurricane or earthquake is God's judgment, to professors proclaiming that God has only ever been a figment of our imagination, to people in a recovery meeting sitting in a circle drinking bad coffee and talking about surrendering to a higher power, to musicians in their acceptance speech at an awards show thanking God for their hit song about a late night booty call, 
when it comes to God, we are all over the place. Like a mirror, God appears to be more and more a reflection of whoever it is that happens to be talking about God at the moment. When we think, when we talk, when we write about God, there's no doubt that as a culture, we are indeed all over the map. Is it even possible to conceive of being on the same page when it comes to our understanding of God? Imagine a world like that. Gratefully, the writers of the New Testament were absolutely of one mind in how they saw God. And with one voice, they say that to understand God properly, we need to look at Jesus. It was John who wrapped up the stunning prologue to his gospel by saying this, that no one has ever seen God but the one and only Son, who is himself God and is in closest relationship with the Father, has made him known. In other words, we can never know who God is until we look at Jesus. And it was the life of Jesus that prompted the Apostle John to summarize God's essence by saying, God is love. What does he mean? What does he not mean? That's where we want to spend our time this morning. Now, God is love. A single sermon can't come close to saying all that could be said about a theme so massive, so all-encompassing. And that's why it's such good news for all of us, both preacher and hearer, that there is a living sermon, that the Word made flesh who continually beckons us to listen and to follow. So, even so, my hope and my prayer this morning is that as we take a closer look at this text, that with the help of the Holy Spirit, we would find the grace and consent, uh, or find, sorry, find the grace to consent to God taking a closer look at us, and as we are seen and known by this God who is love, that we would respond to his invitation to live more deeply out of that love. Sound okay? I'm excited. Let's pray. God. You are love. That is our confession and our declaration this morning. Even in the midst of confusion and inner wondering about how true that is for us, for the world around us, um, we want to claim it as truth today. We invite your spirit to search us and to unveil those things that would keep us from fully immersing ourselves in this reality. We thank you for your word that speaks and continues to Uh, cut through a lot of the noise that we find surrounding us in the wider culture and even within ourselves. So we ask for clarity of understanding, ears to hear, hearts to receive, and courage to live out that which you reveal to us today. In the name of Christ, we pray. Amen. So on your chair Bibles, also known as screensaver Bibles, um, you are welcome to read along as I open up the text. We're going to start at 1 John 4. Uh, It's on page 857, right near the back. 4 and verse 16b. God is love. Whoever lives in love lives in God and God in them. This is how love is made complete among us so that we will have confidence on the day of judgment. In this world, we are like Jesus. There is no fear in love. But perfect love drives out fear, because fear has to do with punishment. The one who fears is not made perfect in love. We love because he first loved us. Whoever claims to love God yet hates a brother or sister is a liar. For whoever does not love their brother and sister whom they have seen cannot love God whom they have have seen. 
Did I get that backwards? For whoever who does not love their brother and sister whom they have seen cannot love God whom they have not seen. And he has given us this command, anyone who loves God must also love their brother and sister. This is God's word. So, God is love. That's a bold claim. And here's another one by a fellow Canadian pastor. He said, I believe these are the three most beautiful words strung together in the English language. God is love. Now, whether you agree or not, to say God is love only translates well if we know what love is. Is it an emotion? Is it a sentimental sensation? Is it a philosophical value? Well, the Greek word for love in our text is agape, and it means an unwavering, honoring, active engagement with a person. Agape is the ongoing determination to work for the good of someone. So back in chapter 3, you may recall how clear John was about how we define agape. Verse 16 of chapter 3, this is how we know what love is. Jesus Christ laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for our brothers and sisters. A couple things to note here. When you read this verse, you actually expect the flow of grammar to go like this. Jesus laid down his life for us, so we ought to lay down our lives for him, right? Sort of would make sense. But John doesn't do that. Instead, he says that because Jesus loved us, we ought to love other people. So our responsibility whenever we are recipients of love is to pay it forward. As the person I quoted a moment ago, Bruxy Cavey, reminds us, that is the repeated flow of New Testament ethics. When you are wondering what is the right way to treat someone in any given situation, first ask, how has God treated me? How have I been treated by this God who is love? That is why it's so critical that we keep working to ensure that what comes to mind when we think about God is in sync with what Jesus said and taught and did and how he saw people. I say keep working on how we perceive God because we drift, right? We forget. Memory fades. We get sidetracked. We get derailed. We get shouted down by competing voices. I keep imagining what it would be like if the church placed the same importance on her spiritual memory as we do on making sure our phones and our laptops are backed up. What would that be like? Because when we don't do this, when we don't tend to our spiritual memory, when we fail to continually and actively remind ourselves that Jesus is what God has to say, we end up with white supremacy. We end up with KKK. We end up with racially motivated violence. I saw some images of a few of you who are out rallying and protesting yesterday and so grateful we were thanking God this morning in prayer together um, that there was no violence in, in the protest, that it was in fact a peaceful one and so wish I could have been with you rather than preparing this. But anyway, trade-offs. So you and I, because we have ideas about God, whether conscious or not, we will project those ideas and perceptions onto the world and into our worlds. That's just how we're wired. And then that projection eventually becomes embodied. So if we're not focused on the right picture of God, if we're not continually gazing at Jesus and letting him look at us, life gets really ugly. Now, good news is that it doesn't have to be that way. It can be really beautiful. God is love. Whoever lives in love lives in God and God in them. This is how love is made complete among us so that we will have confidence on the day of judgment. In this world, we are like Jesus. Speaking of being like Jesus, I just saw this yesterday. How like Jesus is this image? 
Humanity should be our race. Love should be our religion. What's John saying? He's saying that we have an opportunity to participate in God's worldwide formation by love project. In other words, whenever you and I turn our love into flesh and blood, we are playing a part in completing God's love. How crazy is that? We get to participate in making God's love complete. This is how love is made complete among us. That's what John's saying. First of all, can you fathom the idea of a love that is complete and whole? Earlier this month, Terry and I celebrated 20 years of married life. I wanted to withhold. Sorry, Steph, I didn't answer because just wanted to be a surprise and, you know, that kind of thing. So as part of marking the occasion, I gave her a card with, you know, some words in it, as you do. And they were words having to do with love, as you might imagine. Now, I honestly believe that the love Terry and I share is more complete, it's more whole, it's more real, it's more time-tested than it was on our wedding day. That's an obvious statement. Yet somehow, 20 years in, even though I love Terry more, I'm prone to be less flowery and superlative in what I say verbally in terms of how much I love her. Part of it, I think, is that as I get older, I'm more aware of how much I still need to grow in learning to love well, so let's just be more honest about what I'm saying. And another part related to that is that my actions speak much more loudly than words, and so I'd rather uh, do that in, in action. And another thing, I think Jerry Maguire was dead wrong. Just wait for it. Mm-hmm. So, right? Thanks for your enthusiasm, Ben, and for your expertise, Heather, in being able to repeat. I didn't cue that. I didn't... Yeah, okay, so... As two imperfect humans, we are not capable of completing one another. None of us, even at our very best, can express the fullness of true love, and we are not meant to. And yet, here's John raising the possibility of love that is made complete. How does love get made more complete? When we're like Jesus. Where is it made complete? This is mind-blowing. Among us. In marriage. In a church family. In our homes. In our workplaces. In our neighborhoods. With our roommates. On the internet. As we live tangibly in love, we live in God, says John. And when that happens, what is operating through us is nothing less than the true love of the true God. And that leads us to another thing about 1 John 3.16 and the definition of agape, namely, that Jesus is love embodied. So he doesn't just teach us about love, he shows us what true love is. And there's that anti-Gnosticism theme at work again. It's not stated explicitly, but true love doesn't live out there in the realm of esoteric ideas and knowledge or even in the Twitterverse. It lives here, on the ground, in earthy, messy relationships between real human persons. This is so integral to John's theology that he can't help circling back to this for the 23rd time, to the theme of how this love gets evidenced. 20, 19 to 21 of chapter 4, we love because he first loved us, and whoever claims to love God yet hates a brother or sister is a liar. For whoever does not love their brother and sister whom they have seen cannot love God whom they have seen. And he's given us this command. Anyone who loves God must also love their brother 
and sister. I love how our local scholar Rick Watts at Regent summed this up. He said, Jesus began something that he is continuing through us. We are to be living out the incarnation through service teams, for example. There's always a need to love your brother and sister in a tangible way through being involved in service on a Sunday morning. We've done this a number of times, just talked about the number of people it takes to make a gathering happen, and especially in a community that values uh, all people. We need every, all hands on deck, especially as we move into the fall now, and there are going to be a number of uh, people who are not yet in the room that are going to be uh, looking to get into it and be part of it. So I invite us to consider that as a way of tangibly showing love to our brother and sister. So when John says God is love, that is how he is defining love, agape, Jesus, embodied love. Now, some of us might be thinking, doesn't the Bible describe God as having other qualities, expressions, or attributes besides love, like being holy or sovereign or righteous? Yes. But these qualities are never described as God's essence. The essence of God is love. And I want to spend some time here because there tends to be a lot of confusion around it, both in the church and also in the wider culture. So you do a bit of a tour of a few different scriptures around this. First, have a look at this image. This is from Bruxy Cavey again, and I found his teaching really helpful on this theme. So I'm borrowing a lot of this from him. He's a pastor and author in uh, Toronto at the Meeting House. So as you're looking at this, again, when John says God is love, he is on about the essence of the Almighty, the DNA of the divine, the actual guts of God. So what the graphic reveals is that God is not the sum total of multiple qualities, but God is love. And so this is a love that is expressed in different ways. And what this means is that every expression Everything God does is love because everything that God is, is love. So God's guts, the actual stuff of God, must be what God is in and of God's self, apart from anything or anyone else. So to say God is love is to describe who and what God is, or God was before God created anything. It is to say who and what God is now, in the present, in our lives. And it is to say who and what God will be forever in eternity. So to say God is love is to acknowledge that this is what God is and not just how God behaves or thinks or feels. And what God is cannot be altered. Which is pretty great news for us. Because it means God's love can't be diminished in the least. Since that would be a diminishing of God's very self. Here's a case in point. If we try to say that God is holiness in his essence, we are saying something that's both unbiblical and nonsensical. Because the definition of holy is to be set apart from other things as distinct, as special. And so God is holy and forever will be because, among other reasons, God alone is the creator and so is set apart from all else that exists because everything else is creation. Right? So, but before the creation of the world, to say that God was holy would make no sense. Before creation, God was not set apart from anything else. There was only God. Holiness depends on other things existing for it to be said to be God's essence. With me? So, yes, in an eternal future, we will properly relate to God as holy because there is a we to relate to God. As God is to the angels forever so is God to us forever, the eternal three times holy God. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. The whole earth is full of his glory. 
An even more obvious example is that God was not a just judge who was wrathful before the creation of all things. To be a judge is to be a judge over something or someone else. So it doesn't make sense to suggest that God was ever wrathful about anything within himself. And before God created all things, there was never anything external to God's self to be wrathful about. So God's judgment is a concept that only makes sense after God made us and after we chose autonomy. Still with me? Now hold on. What about Bible verses that say God hates some people? It's true. Sometimes we read that God hates specific people. Here are two examples. I have loved you, says the Lord, but you ask, how have you loved us? Was not Esau, Jacob's brother, declares the Lord. Yet I have loved Jacob, but Esau I have hated. And I have turned his hill country into a wasteland and left his inheritance to the desert jackals. Proverbs, there are six things the Lord hates, seven that are detestable to him. Haughty eyes, a lying tongue, hands that shed innocent blood, a heart that devises wicked schemes, feet that are quick to rush into evil, a false witness who pours out lies, and a person who stirs up conflict in the community. Happy stuff. In Proverbs, at first we're told that God hates the body parts of a person who does evil, and then we learn that God actually hates the person who does evil. And what about poor Esau in Malachi and Romans? Was he hated by God from birth? Now, the biggest mistake we can make from these passages is to think that God is partially love and partially hate. We don't balance our picture of God with some equal but opposite quality. It's not yin and yang. Yin-yang is not a Christian God concept. God is love, full stop. What the Bible calls hate is, in God's case, an expression of divine love. In Hebrew thought, if love, the word in Hebrew is hesed, or in Greek, agape, and in Hebrew and Greek thought, love is a choice to bless, then hatred means not to be chosen for that blessing or that special honor. So Esau was not chosen for the mission that God chose for Jacob. And likewise, someone who is literally hell-bent on rushing into evil is not chosen for blessing, but is in fact, opposed, in fact opposed by God. And yet, even an act of opposition is an expression of love. Why? Because God is love. My son, says Proverbs elsewhere, do not despise the Lord's discipline. And do not resent his rebuke, because the Lord disciplines those he loves. As a father, the son he delights in. Everything God does is love, because everything God is, is love. Is this sinking in? One more case study. This time we're going to look at Jesus. Jesus helps us see that in biblical language, hate is not the opposite of love, but a potential expression of love. So when Jesus instructs his followers to make him their sole priority, to choose him above all others, including our own families, he puts it this way. If anyone comes to me and does not hate mother and father, wife and children, brothers and sisters, yes, even their own life, such a person cannot be my disciple. We are instructed by Christ to hate those closest to us and even our own lives. And yet we know that Jesus also says, love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment. And the second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. All the law and prophets hang on these two commandments. So Jesus calls us to love 
all people, our friends, our neighbors, our enemies, and ourselves. So when Jesus says, hate your family and your own life, what he is not saying is be unloving toward everyone of significance in your life, your roommates, your spouse, your children, your parents, your siblings, your cousins, your in-laws, and don't forget yourself. No. He is instead inviting us to love him first and best. God himself loves everyone, even the sinners that Proverbs says he hates. You see, just at the right time, when we were still powerless, Christ died for the ungodly. Very rarely will anyone die for a righteous person, though for a good person someone might possibly dare to die, but God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since we have now been justified by his blood, how much more shall we be saved from God's wrath through him? For if, while we were God's enemies, we were reconciled to him through the death of his son, how much more, having been reconciled, shall we be saved through his life? Are we seeing how crucial it is to look at Jesus in order to understand God? So God in Christ loves everyone, including the ungodly, including sinners, including God's enemies, because God cannot do otherwise. God is love. Therefore, every experience we have of God is an expression of love. Now, sometimes that love will be experienced as an encouraging embrace. Other times, perhaps when we're fighting back against God's best for our lives, that love will feel like hot coals being poured on our heads. Our experience of God's love will be determined by whether or not we embrace or reject it. But everything that comes to us from God will always be love. It's a good question to be asking ourselves in learning to experience God's love in real time might be, how is God loving me right now? Is God loving me through comfort or rebuke? Is God loving me through freedom and joy or through correction and discipline? Is God loving me through unexpected blessing and perhaps teaching me something about gratitude and generosity and caring for the poor? out of the overflow of what he's giving me? Or is God loving me by leading me into a season of having less in order to teach me something about trust and reliance and solidarity with the poor? This is, of course, not an exhaustive list, but maybe your story connects in some way with one of these. Brendan Manning put it this way, living in awareness of our belovedness is the axis around which the Christian life revolves. Awareness of our belovedness, that's it. That's the crux, that's the center. And here's an equally important follow-up question to how is God loving me right now? It's this, how am I responding to God's loving action in my life? I'll leave that with us for now. But that brings us to another important question raised in this text. First, a summary. What have we heard so far? John has declared to, uh, or dared to declare, the essence of God as love, full stop, He's invited us to live our lives in such a way that we are in as close contact as possible with that love. Whoever lives in love lives in God. He has explained how love is made complete in us and among us by living out the incarnation, by loving our sisters and brothers as Christ showed us. And then he reveals the thing that most often and most powerfully and often subtly 
keeps us from living in God's love? Fear. Verse 18, there is no fear in love, but perfect love drives out fear because fear has to do with punishment. The one who fears is not made perfect in love. Einstein said one of the most important questions facing every individual is whether or not the universe is friendly. When you survey human history, it would seem that most people have not believed that it is. Uh, the gods seem to be either indifferent or hostile to human beings. And in either case, they seem to require appeasement, something to attract their attention, something to curry their favor. And let's be clear about one thing here, that religion based on appeasement doesn't just happen in less developed and non-Western cultures. If we take an honest look about how people in our culture actually relate to their God, we quickly realize that huge numbers of people live in a universe they consider to be unfriendly. Even among those of us seeking to follow the way of Christ, we hear John say, God is love. And part of us goes, yeah, I totally know that. But you press that a little further and gaps start showing up between theory and practice, or what we say we believe and what we actually live out. For many of us, when it comes to the way we interact with God, there's a huge gulf between our espoused beliefs and our operational beliefs. Our God, who is supposedly love, and we know this, is still a God who requires appeasement to earn favor and escape wrath. Listen to one person's experience. Some of us might be able to relate to this on some level. My own spiritual journey began with frantic steps to ensure that I escaped God's punishment. After several years of hellfire sermons, I did what anybody, any reasonable 10-year-old child would do under the circumstances. I accepted Christ into my heart and began seeking to live a life that would please God. My motive for doing so was predominantly punishment avoidance. I was told that salvation was a gift of love, but it seemed strange to ask me to accept a gift at gunpoint. I tried to believe that God was a God of love, but what was prominent in my mind was his justice and holiness. I saw little that invited surrender. My obedience was out of duty, not devotion, and my earliest steps on the spiritual journey involved covering my bases to minimize risk. They were not steps of surrender to love. Thank God my story didn't end there. The hunger God had planted in me for him left me longing for a relationship with him, not simply a way to avoid hell. Slowly, a shift in my experience of God began to take place as I learned to meet him in my emotions and senses, not just my thoughts. Slowly but steadily, fear of a God whose wrath was primary began to be replaced with surrender to a God whose love was primary. It made all the difference in the world for me. As David Benner from his book, Surrender to Love. He goes on to say this, love and fear stand in a complex relationship to each other. Ever since Eden, the human struggle has been to escape from the grip of the spirit of fear and to be open to the embrace of love. The words of John that perfect love casts out fear communicate an absolutely profound psycho-spiritual truth. But how are we to understand the fact that so many people who bask in love continue to slither in fear? Surely this suggests that love is overrated as a transformational power. How else could we explain why we sometimes seem to love our fear and fear the loss that would be involved in giving fear up? If you connect at all to Benner's story, or if you're someone who has ever struggled with the gap between knowing in your head God is love and actually knowing and trusting at a heart level 
that God is love. I recommend this book highly. It's had a big impact on my own life. A little bit more from Benner, Faces of Fear. He, he talks, goes on to explain how one thing that keeps us from gaining freedom from fear is that most fearful people don't think of themselves as afraid. That unless our fears are focused on something external, like snakes or heights or crowds, most of us in bondage to fear fail to recognize the true nature of our inner distress. Fear that hasn't found a way to attach to external sources is very hard to identify. It has many faces, all of which mask its essential nature. So some people fear intimacy, while others fear solitude. Some fear loss of control, while others fear a loss of things or a loss of image. Some fear the strength of their feelings, while other fear, others fear the loss of some comforting feeling. Some fear attention, while others fear neglect. Some fear life, while others fear death. Some fear pleasure, while others fear pain. Some fear loss of love, while others fear love itself. Now, fear, of course, is a huge topic as well, and I wish I had time really just to read Benner's whole chapter on this. It's so, so good. And because of its many faces, the way that we as individuals experience fear around the room here will be many and varied, as different as we are, which means the path toward freedom will look different and require a different kind of inner work as we partner with the Spirit in our own formation. But let me begin to wrap things up by saying this. In our text, the fear John addresses is the fear that expects punishment from God and therefore cripples us. But what if it's true that God is love? What if it's true that God isn't out to get us, that we don't have to live in fear of punishment? What if this is the primary reason love came to us as a person? Benner once more, the good news of Christianity is something that we would have never discovered if Jesus had not come and shown us the character of God. Everything within us tells us that the universe must be organized according to a principle wherein we get what we deserve. But quite unbelievably, God is not simply the projection of our own image on the cosmos. He is different from anything we could have ever imagined. He offers us something we could never deserve, forgiveness of our sins and his embrace of love. Here's the good news, friends. As we prepare once again to eat and drink and fellowship together at the Lord's table, perfect love drives out fear. Jesus himself is the antidote to fear. Jesus comes to us and shows us what God is like. God knew how we would react to a God who suddenly showed up on earth, so God became human to meet us where we are and to minimize our fears. Jesus reached out across the chasm caused by our sin and rebooted the relationship. The incarnation, indeed, is true love reaching out to dispel fear. It's good news. It's possible that as we've been looking at these themes, um, that some of your own fears came to your attention as we've been looking at this text. If that's the case, I want to invite you to stay with them. Take some time to reflect on them. Don't draw back. Face them. Stare them down. Name your fears for what they are. It's the things that we refuse to face that have the greatest potential to diminish us. So this isn't easy. If it were, we would have done it already. <laughs> so something needs to be different 
in order to give us courage to face what we tend to avoid. And that difference, of course, is love. The love that has descended to us, fleshed and full in the person of Christ. And so our vision needs to go back and forth between God's love and our fears. Naming them, facing them, what am I fearing? How is God's love driving that out in my experience now? And it's as we soak in love that we gain courage to face our fears. One way to ground ourselves in perfect love is to spend time just meditating on Jesus' life and teaching, reading the Gospels. I want to lead you in a short reflection right now from Luke's Gospel before we come to the table. So just invite you to listen to this short passage from the Gospel of Luke. Listen to these words of Jesus as if they were spoken for the first time and directly to you. Pay close attention to what Jesus says about how valuable you are to him. Hear his love for you and notice how it feels to bask in this love. Feel yourself rest in the love of this lover, God, who promises to care for your every need and give you much more than you could ever dare to expect. Then Jesus said to his disciples at Artisan Church, Therefore I tell you, do not worry about your life, what you will eat, or about your body, what you will wear. For life is more than food, and the body more than clothes. Consider the ravens. They do not sow or reap. They have no storeroom or barn, yet God feeds them. And how much more valuable you are than birds. Who of you, by worrying, can add a single hour to your life? Since you cannot do this very little thing, why do you worry about the rest? Consider how the wild flowers grow. They do not labor or spin. Yet I tell you, not even Solomon in all his splendor was dressed like one of these. If that is how God clothes the grass of the field, which is here today, and tomorrow is thrown into the fire, how much more will he clothe you, you of little faith? And do not set your heart on what you will eat or drink. Do not worry about it. For the pagan world runs after all such things, and your Father knows that you need them. But seek his kingdom, and these things will be given to you as well. Do not be afraid, little flock, for your Father has been pleased to give you the kingdom. Amen.